Welcome, friends. You're listening to the Ultimate Outcome Sermon Podcast. Here's Richard Elwell with today's sermon. Good morning. One of the things I'd like to uh, really accomplish this morning is to demonstrate once again, demonstrate anew how amazing Jesus is. And one of the things I'd like to really demonstrate about how amazing Jesus is, is the context of his extension of mercy on the cross. I'd like to just begin by asking this question. What causes us to have a merciful attitude towards somebody else? What makes it easier for us to be merciful? Or what what causes us to have an unmerciful attitude towards somebody else? You know, as I was thinking about that, I mean, there may be more than this, but I was thinking there's really two factors that contribute to how mercifully we respond to other people. Uh, the first is, is how humble they are, right? Isn't it easier to be merciful to somebody when you have a sense that they're broken and humble and, and contrite? It, it just provokes something in us to make it easier for us to be merciful towards them. Uh, think about that in terms of Christ on the cross where he extended mercy to those who weren't humble. Uh, but it's like this week in the news, uh, Elliot Spitzer was there uh, standing before the nation, and there wasn't a whole lot of mercy extended to the guy because here he was caught in the very act of doing what it was that he was sending people to jail for. And there, there just wasn't a sense of any uh, deep contrition or humility, and uh, he had very little uh, mercy extended to him because of his arrogant hypocrisy. Um, The second factor I think that contributes to how merciful or unmerciful we are is our own life's experience. Isn't it true that we tend to be, tend to be, although sometimes uh, people who conquer a certain thing uh, tend to still be harsh, like reformed smokers sometimes are really tough on (laughs) current smokers, but we tend to be merciful in areas where we understand our own weaknesses. Uh, like it's hard, a hard time. I have, I would have a hard time being merciful to a burglar uh, because I've never had any desire to break into your home and steal your stuff. Uh, you know, your house key is safe with me. Uh, so when, when somebody is, I, I don't understand those desires and those passions to, uh, to do that kind of thing. And so I'd have a much harder time, uh, feeling mercy towards somebody who did that than towards, uh, Say, for example, um, my feeling merciful towards somebody who is struggling with an addiction or struggling with alcohol or, uh, you know, having uh, entered into the party lifestyle as a young man and having been caught in that prison, I understand it. And I understand how difficult it is to get out of it. And I would tend to have mercy on people who are caught there. Um, You know, I am called to be merciful to all people because God has been merciful to me. But it is a lot easier to be merciful to a person when they're contrite. And it is a lot easier to be merciful when I understand their weaknesses. Today, as we continue in our series entitled No Greater Love, uh, it's a series looking at the last few hours of Jesus's life. We're going to be looking at how amazing it is that uh, God through Christ Uh, was merciful to mankind and how amazing it is in light of his circumstances. Think about this for a second. Those who God proclaimed mercy on were not contrite. 
And it wasn't a broken Christ who, you know, was proclaiming mercy. It was a, a holy Christ. It, you know, somehow Christ and his holiness could identify with our weakness. And somehow he was even able to be totally merciful. And we're going to see that at the moment where he's extending mercy from the cross. Uh, it isn't as though uh, people are um, understanding the depravity of their sin. It's so amazing to me that Christ is so much God. There's so, he's so amazing in the context of him being nailed to a cross. The way he is on that cross is so uh, unique. And I hope to get that uniqueness across today, that, that uh, if we were to imagine what we would be like in that circumstance, if you were, think about this for a second, if you were morally perfect like Christ is morally perfect, and if you were being crucified by an arrogant mob, like Christ was crucified by an arrogant mob, would mercy be your natural response? How merciful would you feel towards that crowd who is doing that to you? A holy and perfect God, the creator of the universe. This morning, our message is entitled, Don't Weep for Me. Don't weep for me. And, and uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 40, 43. Uh, I think it's through 47. Yeah, it's through 47. Um, and, and I want to just uh, think about this for a second. Can we see the amazing deity of Jesus Christ in the way he acted when he was being crucified? Can we see beyond his agony and beyond the horror of the moment and see the deity of Christ, the majesty of Christ in the context of his being crucified? Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 26, it says this, as they led him away, they seized Simon the Cyrene, uh, for, excuse me for a second. I need to pray for the verse this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you. And Lord, I, I'm anxious to, to try to convey what I have seen through your word in these verses, Lord. Convey the, the majesty of who you are, even in the darkest and the lowest context, that your deity just comes out as the way you act and the way you conduct yourself as you're being crucified. And I, I pray, Father, that all of our eyes would see and be filled with an appreciation of your uniqueness and your beauty and your glory this morning as we look at uh, you on the cross. Father, we just look to you and we ask God that you'd bless the reading of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, beginning at verse uh, 26 of chapter 23 of Luke, it says this, as they led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene who was on his way from the country and they and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. That's pretty amazing. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed is the barren woman who, who's... The, blessed is the barren woman, the womb that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things, when the tree is green, 
what will happen when it is dry. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was, written, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now, what I want you to see is that no mere mortal, uh, no mere mortal could have had the perspective Jesus had while he was being crucified. In verse 27, we see this group of women naturally looking at the suffering that their Lord had been, been, been going through, and they were crying for him. They were weeping for him. And he turns, he says, don't weep for me. I'm not the one that should be the object of your pity. In fact, if you're going to weep for anybody, weep for yourselves. Because look, if this kind of thing happens when the tree is green, when I'm with you, what's going to happen when I'm absent? And he was looking forward to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, when the, the pain and the suffering among the people is going to be so great, they're going to ask for mountains to just fall on them. He, Jesus is saying, don't pity me in this circumstance. I'm not the one to be pitied. You and your children, on the other hand, uh, I pity you. The bottom line he was saying for the daughters of Jerusalem is this. The rejection of Jesus doesn't uh, hurt Jesus. People's rejection of me doesn't hurt me. The people's rejection of me hurts them and hurts you. You're the ones that ought to be pitied. Imagine thinking that way as you're being crucified. That the ones that are harmed here this day, I'm not among them, even though I'm about to have my hands nailed to a cross and I'm about to hang, be hung there to die. It's funny because just a couple chapters earlier, in chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus was literally himself weeping over Jerusalem. He was pitying Jerusalem and he was saying, Jerusalem, if only you could see what would bring you peace. 
If only you had eyes to see the peace that I have come to bring you. But you can't. You're blind to it. He, he was feeling sorry for Jerusalem and the condition that they were in, not for himself. The thing I want to uh, stress this morning, the theme of this morning's message is this, that even in death, Jesus exercises his divine prerogative. Even in death, he acts in the right and the function of God himself. Even in death, Jesus exercises his divine prerogative. It's hard to imagine Jesus functioning in his divine office, that is, fulfilling his heavenly duties while he's being nailed to a wooden cross. But if you have eyes to see, Jesus continues to demonstrate his unique deity even while um, he's being nailed to the cross. Some might say especially while he's being nailed to the cross. You notice in verse uh, 34, he is exercising his divine prerogative, uh, which is to forgive sinners. Only God can forgive sinners. And in verse 34, he extends forgiveness to this crowd, this mob that is mocking him, this group of soldiers that is uh, um, tormenting him. And he says, Father, they're ignorant. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he exercises his divine prerogative through forgiveness. In verse 43, we see that he exercises his divine prerogative uh, through judgment. He makes a judgment. He has decisions of life and death. He's telling one thief, you're going to heaven with me. And by silence, he's implying the other one is not. So here he is nailed to the cross and he's a judge making judgments about the destiny of men. He's exercising his divine prerogative that only God alone has. Even while he's nailed to the cross, he's making proclamations of judgment about mankind. Separating one going to heaven and the other going to hell. And lastly, the one thing that convinces the uh, soldiers that he is God's son was that he exercises his divine prerogative over, over death. Divine prerogative over death. We're going to see in the last point we make today that the, the soldier saw no one has ever died of crucifixion the way this guy died. We're going to look at the uniqueness of his death and we're going to see he wasn't killed because he was crucified. He didn't die the way a normal person dies of crucifixion. His death came by a release of his own spirit into the Father's hand by his own volition. We're going to see that when we look at how people die in crucifixion. But what I want you to see is that who would think that God would be visible in the condition of being crucified? You know, that would be the last picture you think you would have of the glory and the majesty of God being nailed to a cross. But here we see, if you have eyes to see it, that his majesty is even evident in this most horrific circumstance. And for some reason, it kind of reminded me of Mark Twain's um, book entitled uh, The Prince and the Pauper. You may remember the story where uh, Prince Edward uh, looked exactly alike a pauper named Tom. And the two decided they were going to experiment with life and trade places. And uh, so uh, Tom became the prince and Edward became the pauper. And no one but the two of them knew that this exchange had occurred. And uh, 
uh, just about at the point at which the king had died and just at the point at which Tom was uh, about to be coronated as king, they were trying to tr switch back again. But as the pauper Edward came in, who was truly the prince, no one believed him because he was, looked like a pauper in tatters. Uh, but he was able to prove and establish that he was in fact the true prince even in, when he was in tatters, even in this uh, disheveled condition, because he knew where the divine seal was, and the only one that knew where that was was him, would be the prince. And so he demonstrated the, his royalty by his knowledge. Well, in a somewhat similar way here, that even in tatters, even in the tatter, even in the condition of the most defiled human condition being crucified with criminals on a cross, the deity of Christ shines through. It is made evident by uh, the way he conducted himself and what he was doing while he was on the cross. Jesus didn't look much like even a man on the cross, much less like God and King. But he conduct him, conducted himself in such a way that those soldiers who could care less who he was, at the end of the day said, this is the Son of God. We're going to see that as we go along. And what I want to ask you is, can you see? Can you see God's glory and majesty through Christ, even as Christ is nailed to the cross? Or maybe even especially as we look at cross, Christ nailed to the cross. Again, this morning's theme is, even in death, Jesus exercises his divine prerogative. Uh, point number one is this. Jesus used the cross as an altar and a throne. I want you to see this. He was both priest and king on the cross. He, this, this cross, that cross over there, the cross that Christ was on, the cross is an altar and it is also a throne. It is the place by which we receive mercy, and it is that which uh, God executes judgment from. Uh, it, even in death, he was exercising his divine prerogative as a priest and as a king. Let's take a look at a couple verses here. <clears throat> Verse 32 and 33, uh, or through 34, it says this, Two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place uh, called the skull, they, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes and cast lots. Uh, so this is an example of the cross as an altar, a place of the extension of mercy to mankind. And then... Uh, in verses 39 through 43, it says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. Um, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. <laughs> then, Jesus, then he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. What I want you to see in these verses is that through these verses, uh, he, that Christ is uh, fulfilling three roles. He's fulfilling the role of priest, he's fulfilling the role of prophet, and he's fulfilling the role of king uh, in, in his forgiveness of those who are mocking him, in his extension of mercy, he's acting 
uh, as, uh, as a priest uh, making atonement for the people. The cross became the focal point of the very atonement for our sins. It is the place in which our sins find their atoning forgiveness. Christ was fulfilling the office of priest, our high priest on the cross. Jesus was functioning also in his prophetic office there. He was foretelling the future. He was looking off into the future and he was proclaiming uh, the destiny of the repentant thief. He was saying to him, today you're going to be, he was projecting into the future, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So Christ was uh, fulfilling his prophetic office, foretelling the future uh, to that thief. And he was also with the thief, fulfilling his role as king, as the judge, uh, he, having uh, the right to have men give an account before him. Uh, there he extends, having extended his mercy, he makes open to heaven uh, through judgment, uh, paradise to this, to this uh, thief. And by silence, uh, we recognize that the other thief is not going there. So he's making a, a, a judgment here on the cross of men's destiny. And in so, Jesus is demonstrating his rule over his creation, even when his creation was crucifying him. Uh, this is kind of a strange illustration because, uh, you know, it only fits in one way. So uh, let me try to uh, give you the illustration and then explain how I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate by it because I'm in no way trying to equate Christ with a criminal in jail. But a lot of times business leaders or businessmen are, go to jail and they're able to continue to conduct their business from jail. They use the Business, the means of communication, letters and telephones to continue to be the CEO of their business or whatever enterprise, whether legal or illegal enterprise, even while they're in jail. Uh, why are they able to do that? Because they still have ownership rights of what belongs to them. And what I want you to see here with Christ is that Christ continued to conduct God's business even while he was nailed to the cross. Why? Because he continues to have an ownership right of his creation. He owns us. He especially owns us because of the cross. Uh, he purchased us. He redeemed us. When we say we were be, we've been redeemed by Christ, uh, crucified, what we're saying is he not only owns us by virtue of the fact that he's our creator and we're his creation, but he, he especially owns us because he paid the penalty for our sins. He redeemed us out of the payment of our sins. So he, we're double owned by him. We're owned because we, everything that we are is a result of him having created us. And we're owned because his mercy has relieved us from our debt to him. So what I want you to see is Jesus is even able to conduct God's business, even while he is nailed to a cross because of his ownership rights. Because he is the creator. He, he is the one that has authority over his creation. And even while he's allowing his creation to crucify him, he is still, he is still acting in the, the place and the seat of authority. Uh, maybe even acting more so out of his authority on the cross than anywhere else. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Can we see? Can we see? Can we see? When we look at the cross, can we see? Can we see that uh, nothing, nothing, not even the cruel indignities of being crucified can diminish the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you see that this morning? That's what I want you to see. 
I want you to see that nothing can diminish the majesty of Christ, not even being subjected to the greatest human indignity that anyone could ever have placed on them, even in that moment of complete rejection and totally unjust treatment, the glory of Christ in his personhood shines through. The question is, in seeing it, will we be humbled uh, by his innocence and by our guilt? That's one of the thieves was humbled by his innocence and by his own guilt. And because of that humility, Jesus judged him and, and sent him to paradise. Will we be like the one who is humbled by the innocence of Jesus and humbled by the guilt of sin that we might recognize our need for God's mercy and recognize that at the cross is an expression of his extension of his mercy, that it is his will to be merciful towards us. You know, you think about the unrepentant thief, you know, it's so easy to see in his pain and his struggle why he just wanted a little relief from his own uh, sin and his own struggle by ridiculing somebody else. That's, That's our human way. It's not like the unrepentant thief is somebody we can't access or understand. You know, a lot of times when we're in the most pain, we cause the most pain. When we're uh, in the, when we feel rejected, we we do a lot of rejecting ourselves. The, The unrepentant thief was not beyond our human understanding. But boy, he sure missed something. In failing to see the majesty and the innocence and the deity of Christ, he missed uh, the mercy of God. Let's, let's not do that. Let's see Jesus for who he is. Humble ourselves before him and let him relieve us of our guilt. <clears throat> Again this morning, uh, even in death, Jesus exercises his divine prerogative. Point number one is Jesus uses the cross as an altar and a throne. Point number two is Jesus in death showed his mastery over death. Let's take a look at verses 44 through 47. I'm not talking about the resurrection here. I'm talking that in his very own death, he showed mastery over death. At the point of his own death, he showed that he was master over death. And let me show you uh, through the eyes of the soldiers how they saw Jesus when he died. Uh, It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land. Well, here's what happened. He was uh, crucified three hours before that. And uh, three hours, he'd been up there for three hours and then darkness descended upon the whole land uh, and which would have caught somebody's attention, you know, and there was some rumblings, earthquakes, amazing thing happened in the temple. Uh, The the, uh, the uh, barrier between the Holy of Holies and the holy place was ripped in half. A lot of stuff was going on, uh, but the one thing I want to focus in on here is the manner in which Christ died. Um, <clears throat> darkness over the whole land in the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last the centurion seeing, now this is a guy that was just a few minutes earlier was basing on him, right? Along with his friends, they were, they were goofing on him and, and uh, challenging him. Uh, parenthetically, I think it's kind of interesting when people said, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? They recognized that he had saved others. 
why wasn't that enough to see for see him for who he was but nevertheless you know these guys were uh, messing with him all of a sudden they came to a complete change of heart in fact uh, where it says here that uh, one centurion said surely this man was a righteous man when he saw how he died uh, the the passage in Matthew talks about a group of centurions uh, confessing uh, that um, that this must be the son of God after watching how he died now they had a per- particular uh, perspective to know that this was no normal man because this was a group of Roman soldiers who uh, had uh, crucified a lot of people, hundreds of people. Um, And what was it that caused these men, these soldiers, who started out the day probably could care less who Jesus was? To them, he was just another scumbag that they were uh, assigned to nail to a cross, what would it cause them, uh, these callous Roman soldiers, uh, to change their opinion about this man who they just nailed to a cross? What, what was it about how he died that was so different to them? Well, as I mentioned, they had witnessed hundreds of crucifixions, and every crucifixion, a death occurs in the same manner. When you're nailed to the cross, you're really fine. You know, your blood has stopped. You're fine. Your, your feet are in, I mean, you're in a lot of pain, a lot of pain, but you still can breathe. There's nothing causing your death at that point. Uh, you're able to push up on your feet and your diaphragm can open and close. And, and so as long as you're pushing up on your feet, you can breathe. And what happens is slowly, just the fatigue of being on the cross gets to you hour after hour after hour, sometimes 24 hours, sometimes even longer. Uh, you, can't, you can't push up like you could before. Your legs are cramping, they're tired, your arms are cramping. You can't pull yourself up to breathe as easily, so you're more slumped over. Your diaphragm can't open and close as much, so your breathing becomes more shallow but you can still breathe. There's nothing killing you. You're there on the cross. You're, all your bodily organs are working. You know, your brain's working. You, the, the blood is pumping. But uh, as the hours go by, the fatigue sets in to where you're so tired. You're so fatigued. Your muscles have atrophied, are, are, are so unable to push up anymore that you're down and you uh, little shallow breaths until you, the whole weight of your body, you can't lift it up anymore. And you're, you're these little breaths until you suffocate because you can't push up enough to get the, last, the next breath. So you sit there suffocating. That's what kills you when you're being crucified. You can't breathe anymore. Uh, it's, you're killed by suffocation, not by bleeding to death or anything else. You're killed by fatigue and suffocation. Now, what did these guys see when they saw Jesus dying? Well, right before his last breath, he's, he's shouting. He's shouting out. He has plenty of breath. It's not a faint whisper. You know, right before you die and you crucify, you don't have enough breath to say hello. He's shouting out, Father, into your arms I commit my spirit. He's got plenty of life left. He's got plenty of strength left. He's got plenty of breath left. And he breathes his will to be sent to his father, and boom, he's gone. Soldiers went, whoa, never seen that one before. That one is a new one. Hundreds of crucifixions, and we have never seen anyone volitionally give up their life, like he just said he did to his father. Ooh, wow, this is the son of God. He just proved it to us, the soldiers said. When we see Jesus on the cross, we're not looking at a helpless victim. 
We're not looking at somebody who couldn't resist all humanity. We're looking at a willing uh, lamb of God who was willing to die in our place. We're looking at a loving God. That's what we're looking at. Who is willing to die so that we might live. God really wanted to make the point of what was happening here at the moment of the crucifixion. He wanted to make the point that this was not a bad day. And he made the point, well, first, there's a lot of things that happened that day. You know, graves opened at the moment of Christ's death. You know, 500 people came out of the grave and graves, dead people came out of graves. And when Christ was risen, they went into Jerusalem and they were testifying to him. But one of the amazing things that happened at this very point when Jesus breathed his last is there in the temple, there's this solid curtain. It doesn't have an opening. It's not like curtains we have that close, close and open like this. It's a barrier. It's a curtain that was a barrier between the holy of holies and the holy place. And only once a year did the high priest dare to venture in there. And he was pretty afraid to venture in there anyway, because, you know, being in the presence of God was such a fearful thing for a sinful man. But he was allowed to venture in there and bring atonement for the people once a year. Went in there with bells on his, on his uh, robe so they could tell, you know, uh, that uh, if the bell stopped ringing, the high priest was in trouble in there. Uh, so what happens is at the moment of Christ's death, this barrier between man and God, all by itself, from the top to the bottom, rips in two. It's God saying to the world, the barrier is gone. The way is open. I've opened the way into my presence through my son, Jesus Christ on the cross. Sinners may come and have fellowship with me through the atonement of their sins that was accomplished by my son. It's a pretty amazing symbol that Christ, uh, that occurred at the moment of Christ's death. God saying to mankind, recorded forever, that the barrier has been ripped open. Christ's death has opened the way into God's presence. And anyone like the thief who is humble enough to recognize his own sin and the holiness and the righteousness of Christ is uh, ushered in. Because, not because we deserve it, but because God is merciful. Do we humbly kneel at the cross so that we can enter into the holy place, into the very presence of God? Even in death, Jesus exercises his divine prerogative. Jesus used the cross as an altar and a throne. Jesus in death showed his mastery over death. And lastly, I'd like to conclude by just trying to grab a sense of the heart of Christ as he looked at Jerusalem uh, while he was ministering over that city. This is what he, he says. He says in uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 34, he says, Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He didn't say, you killed the prophets. He said, who killed the prophets? That should be enough to make uh, God mad, you'd think, to begin with. He killed all the prophets. And stoned those sent to you. You think that would, that would be it, wouldn't it? How long, he says, I have longed to gather you as uh, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He's so much different than we are. He doesn't say, you killed the prophets. He said, you killed the prophets. Nevertheless, I have longed, even regardless of what you've done, I have still longed 
to gather you together under my wing like a chick gathers her chicks. Not like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But then it says, but you were not willing. But you were not willing. But you were not willing. Let that final epitaph not be said of us that we were not willing. If God desired to to uh, gather unto himself those who killed the prophets. Uh, there isn't any sin that we have done that, that uh, uh, keeps his mercy from us as well. Are we willing to be gathered? Are we willing to humbly be gathered under his wings? Are we willing uh, to see Christ in his holiness, nevertheless merciful towards us, towards those who rejected and resisted him? Let's soften our hearts towards his mercy and yield to his care. Let's be gathered under his wings. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have not rejected us. God forbid that we would reject you. Jesus, you have not forsaken us. God forbid that we would forsake you, Lord. Jesus, you have extended your mercy to us. God, help us be merciful towards others. Jesus, you are so unique. You are so amazing. Your power and your love is so profound. You are holy, pure, innocent, and yet, even in your innocence and your profound holiness, you are merciful. And your mercy, as we just read, extends even to the arrogant. You, you would want to gather even the arrogant, but it isn't a matter of what you want, Lord. They would not have it. Father, you do not gather us in opposition to our own will. And we thank you, Father, for your calling. It is so good to have been called by you. It is so good to hear you say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And if you're here this morning and you hear the Spirit of God calling to you, come, come to him, come to him, come to him and, and be gathered under his wings. Father, forgive us for we are sinners. We acknowledge before you that we are sin, sinners and we repent from our sinful ways and we desire uh, and we acknowledge that you died for our sins and we desire to be gathered into and under your care. We receive your mercy through the death of Jesus Christ and we desire the power to live uh, rightly before you through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the Ultimate Outcomes Sermon Podcast. Ultimate Outcomes is a nonprofit organization founded on the biblical principle that knowing and applying God's truth makes a difference in the quality and destiny of our lives. It is our prayer that this podcast and its resources bless you and your churches as much as it has blessed all of us who have learned from the biblical teachings of Richard Elwell. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit www.ultimateoutcomes.org.